Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Political Agenda with me, PJ Thumb. I am wearing a blue batik shirt. I'm sitting around a table with three other people, and we're sitting in front of a map of Southeast Asia. And my pronouns are he, him. And joining me this week, as always, my co-host, Sean Francis Han, Editor-in-Chief of Wake Up Singapore. How are you today, Sean? I'm great, I'm great. I'm wearing, like, the cheapest maroon shirt that I could find at some thrift, shop, uh, thrift store somewhere. Uh, and yeah, my pronouns are... Similarly, he, him. And joining us today, we have two guests from Activism in Crisis. Would you like to describe what you are wearing and what are the pronouns that you use? Hi, um, my name is Minzie. I, I use she, her pronouns. And today I'm dressed in a black dress um, with like a red flower on the left side of it um, and with a collar. Um, hi, I'm Kumar, uh, one of the organizers of Activism in Crisis. And uh, I'm currently wearing a blue batik top. And uh, my pronouns are he, him. I'm, I'm delighted someone else is wearing batik. Fantastic. <laughs> so uh, today we've got two guests from Activism in Crisis. They are looking at talking about discussing, really analyzing the intersections between labor, the ecology, um, and right now, COVID-19 in general, right? So, I mean, ecology is something that I've been waiting to get into for a long time. We've interviewed activists from all different walks of life, uh, from all different corners of activism. Uh, and this is the first time that we're getting into ecology, so I'm really excited to get started. So, um, Kuma, can I direct the question at you? What is AIC? Can you tell us, you know, a sort of brief summary what you guys are? Yeah, so like AIC stands for Activism in Crisis, mm -hmm. and uh, it is what it is. It's how do we organize ourselves? How do we advocate? Mm -hmm. uh, for social change, for social justice during moments of crisis. Now, the term crisis is interesting because right now, we, when we say crisis, we mean COVID, we mean climate change, but there are people who have been living in crisis for a very, very long time. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's what we consider everyday life for some of us. It's, it's crisis mode for a lot of people, whether it is because of their identity, whether it's because of their class position, mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's a moment of crisis. So activism in crisis was opportunistic in a way because we're looking at the, the language of crisis to, mm -hmm. to mobilize and say like, look, okay, what we are, to take stock of what we're doing as activists in different, um, in different issue areas, um, questioning certain um, theories of, of, of activism, like mm -hmm. pragmatic resistance, yeah. right? But also looking back and realizing like, this is, this is to, for us to call this a crisis and for us to say that this is activism and crisis, it's a pretty privileged position. Mm -hmm. There are people who are just they can't. They 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 are, they are. They have to be activists because they have to survive. Because mm -hmm. that is, if they don't, then they get hurt. Mm -hmm. Their friends get hurt, and that that's what activism crisis was about. To mm -hmm. like really take stock of what was being done, and to to recognize like what do we need going forward, and what do we need in this moment of crisis, and in and how do we also include other crises? Yeah. So it's a sort of double meaning. You're talking about um, activism itself being in a state of crisis, but also activism during a state of crisis and the necessity of activism yeah. during that crisis. Oh, great. That's really interesting. So, Mincia, how did everything sort of get started? You know, how did you guys come up with sort of this idea of doing a conference, uh, getting that discussion going? What was the uh, thought behind that? Honestly, I, I was only brought in at the later part of it, so I'm not exactly clear how it started originally mm -hmm. um, but when I was approached um, I think the the team you know what they told me is that they really wanted to have um, you know bring intersectional perspectives and 
also um, exploring the idea of like accessible conference mm -hmm. and I thought that was really um, interesting and something that is really underexplored um, in the way that we have structured conferences for a very long time mm -hmm. um, so yeah so that there was um, what was told to me and like that was a vision that that I felt I resonate strongly with it that's why I went went on to it so uh, Minty Activism in Crisis did a series of conf uh, a conference, you know, a series of workshops, programs, talks, and things like that that took place in August. So can you tell us about the unique circumstances of organizing a conference in these COVID times uh, over Zoom uh, on a completely online level? What, did, what was that like and what was the response? How did you think people uh, took it? What do you think they took away? Yeah, that definitely is a very new situation to be in mm. um yeah but i think it it surprised me and in, in, in the the kind of interactions that, that mm. resulted from it um i think partly also because it wasn't a it wasn't just a zoom conference we we wanted to build community and mm. we wanted to start this community before the the ais even started so um, that's how we created like the slack channels we invited people um into the space earlier so that we can have connections and we start building that relationship after which mm -hmm. yeah, yeah I think that space has been very helpful in, in maintaining yeah. that kind of interactions. So maybe could you share with us like one of the most sort of like noteworthy the most you know the one thing that really affected you throughout the conference? So I think personally for me because I was mm -hmm. mostly focused on how to make this accessible conference yeah. um, one of the things that, that that really really impacted me was how you know, as we were centering accessibility mm -hmm. in the conference, people were starting to hold us accountable to it. Mm -hmm. um, people were, you know, in the feedback form that we passed around, like mm -hmm. people would, um, you know, ask us things, would, would tell us things like, okay, um, there was too much jargon in this in this mm -hmm. event. There was, um, it was, it mm -hmm. was going at a pace that I couldn't keep up with. Yeah. And I, I really, really liked that. I really love to see that mm -hmm. people were holding us accountable to yeah. it. And I think, um, because we centered in the first place, people felt that they can, yeah. and they can voice us out. Um, yeah. And I think one of the things that um, really, really was like wow to me was one one of the feedback that we got, um, because there were quite a lot of comments about um, um, the sign interpreter. Right, there were some mm -hmm. comments about oh they did such a um, great job. Their facial expressions were were so expressive. Mm -hmm. um, there was one feedback that we got. Um, from a disability researcher who who mentioned that these kind of comments are can be quite harmful, yeah. Um, because it kind of you know is saying that sign it's giving the impression that sign interpretation is like a in entertainment rather than mm -hmm. a, providing a genuine access needs. And you yeah. know, if you are a person without a disability, mm -hmm. are you in a position to actually comment on how good the sign interpretation is? Yeah. Yeah, and I thought that was um, yeah that was one of the most like memorable mm. times for me because I never ever thought of that. And I think that really showed, you know, my ignorance and, and you know in some ways my my complicity in this ableist mm. culture. But I have to say, I think I, I would see that as a massive success because that's sort of the point there. You know, coming as, from someone who does some talks and discussions, conferences on academic topics. Um, it's very hard to get people to sort of hold you accountable. There is that sense yeah. in which people just come there and they're like put information in my brain, right? And they're just going to sit there and take it. But to get them to engage and to critique and feel like they have yeah. a part in that, I need to take notes from you on how to do that because I can't, I can't seem to get and that I done. Actually, there's a lesson there also when we think about broader society and politics because very often we don't hold our own government accountable for certain things and um, we say, well, you know, that's actually not 
important or it's not even it, it's not something that we care about when actually what it is is this is a government which doesn't care about those things and that's why we have learned not to hold them accountable for it you know because what's the point so we don't even think about it but uh, you know basic issues of rights um, the government this government the PAP government doesn't care about those it doesn't regard Singaporeans as actually having rights only privileges and so when they don't respect the rights that we do have we don't hold them accountable uh, and then people say oh Singaporeans are apathetic apolitical when actually the causality could be just as well you know the other way around mm. if a government doesn't respect rights people over time stop trying to fight for rights because they know that they can't do anything about it right and and then you can't blame the people for being uh for then giving up on that um you know the the most people for giving up on those rights so i think there's actually a very powerful lesson there right if we think about how do we change the situation in singapore how do we actually change our political culture it can't be one way so anyway i want to sort of bring him back to uh, kuma so earlier we were talking about um your interest in labor, labor rights, migrant workers' rights, and you wanted to um, get that conversation going to import their views, their ideas, their perspectives. Were you able to do that in this conference? And what were the manifestations of that? Yeah, um, I think so. Um, we, we, we tried to, the way we organized each uh, program or module, mm-hmm. um, so it was about 11 or 15 of us, I think, in the organizing team. And we there was a smaller team from there that we crafted. Mm-hmm. Actually, you know, first we had the big team and then we had all these ideas as mm-hmm. to like, okay, what what do we feel is necessary? What are some modules that we want to do? Modules programs, I'm going to use that interchangeably. Mm-hmm. So like modules that we want to do. And then we had a smaller team to really like narrow down on what it could be. We mm-hmm. tried to narrow it down to a month-long festival. Yeah. And... Um, what came out of that was um, then people were organized according to programs and mm-hmm. they decided to fill their own speakers and we had meetings every week to discuss who the speakers are, what our progress was. And um, the discussion was good because we, we were consciously aware of like exclusions mm-hmm. in the different uh, different modules and programs. I mean, some, um, like, like there was some, I mean, it really it varies, but I think the, the good thing is that we brought in a lot of discussion on labor unions yeah so um if i can if i can um shout out to diana rahim i mean her her presentation on um on on so so the first event which i moderated was called more than tweaks alternative visions for singapore Mm -hmm. we wanted to start from there because we want to start from a position of dreaming first Mm -hmm. right really dreaming about what are our goals what are our objectives what are some visions that we can mobilize around and um, and then and then at the very end we talk about strategies. Yeah. So Diana Rahim's one was interesting in that it's counterintuitive. She says that we want a world, we want a Singapore, a world where the word activist doesn't doesn't need to exist because mm-hmm. we are all doing it right. Yeah. We are all involved and so on. And 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 I, I really resonated with that um, because also recent literature I've been reading about the idea that there's a difference between activism mm-hmm. and organizing and and and, and 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 advocacy and all that and activism tends to suggest um, you know there's this sort of minority elite or a privileged few mm-hmm. um, who are like you know just trying to trying to um, uh, fight for social change because the rest can't because they're too busy with their daily lives and all that mm-hmm. that's I mean that's not necessarily true because there are a lot of people who are activists because they have no choice yeah um, but 
I really want hope we can move to a world where we're organizers, right? Mm-hmm. And and we're all organizers and we're all trying to build collective movements rather than a single or like like one or two activists going out and trying to to get some sort of change. Mm-hmm. And and in her in her presentation she talked a lot about the need to have independent labor unions. Mm-hmm. And that is something that you know we don't talk about much in Singapore about labor unions. Um mm-hmm. there that so for example like even when we talk about inequality, right? Yeah. It's Actually, we, we we talk a lot about high SES, low SES, mm-hmm. and that's something I think the government has has done a good job in, right? They they really went in and then they said, okay, yeah, inequality between wage wage labor between wage workers, mm-hmm. right? There's high high income earners and low income earners, but we don't talk about inter class inequality. We don't talk about um, the in, in each company, right? Like how is your how is your investor doing mm-hmm. versus how many workers were laid off? We don't have that kind of rhetoric. Yeah, we don't have that kind of discussion. Mm-hmm. So those were some things that came up. And in terms of labor, I think one thing I regret or not regret, but I think one thing we couldn't we couldn't really uh, do was involve more uh, migrant workers in yeah. the conference. Mm-hmm. And um, that's not stopping us from you know organizing more conferences about that. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, but migrant work, migrant labor did come in a lot in conferences about solidarity across borders mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. So labor was always there. And I think something to echo something Minche has said in another panel before, um, like the, the climate movement has to be the labor movement. Mm-hmm. Like we can't, okay, for one, climate movement can only be successful it has, if it has critical mass. Mm-hmm. And the critical mass is in the working class, is in, is in, is in the workforce. And the other thing is that uh, workers who are in industries that are, that are pollutive, that are you know um, really standing in the way of of reducing emissions, mm-hmm. they're going to feel that, that that you know you're you're going after their jobs and whatever. Yeah. But that's need not be the case. That's why we talk about transitioning. Mm-hmm. That's why SGCR I think after AIC has has at least two statements so far uh, with SIA workers. The first thing they said was we stand with workers, mm-hmm. right? And now with uh, the recent Jurong Island um, um, incident mm-hmm. where an Indian national uh, was was killed, was he died because of uh, toxic gas poisoning? Mm-hmm. Actually, we don't really know what was it about poisonous gas. And there were three other workers who were injured. Jurong Island is super opaque. Nobody knows what really goes on. And um, that was another thing that came up in Big Oil. But the first thing SGCR did was say, like, we stand in solidarity with workers. And I think other, other groups as well, like, like, um, like Speak for Climate as well, like a lot of these, I mean, some, I think we're seeing a climate movement that is becoming more and more labor-centric, more and more labor-focused. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's something to be celebrated. Mm-hmm. So I, I love that sort of theoretical foundation that you have, right? Uh, bringing labor into the discussion about ecology. But I want to ask Mintia now, there is also a strong focus that AIC has on intersectionality. So what is the benefit, what is the importance of this concept when discussing uh, the ecological movement? I think it's something that we cannot avoid mm-hmm. if, if um, you really look at climate justice and what it really means. Yeah. Um, I think just the basic fact that climate change is going to affect the most marginalized people is going to um, exacerbate existing inequalities. Mm-hmm. That in of itself is already a call that for us to, to look into intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Um, when you look at climate change, I think it's hard for us to just look be, be in Singapore. I think mm-hmm. it forces us to, to look um, internationally because it's, it's a global problem. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think you know, understanding the position of Singapore in this in this global landscape of how oftentimes we are the one that are contributing mm-hmm. to the climate crisis rather than um, suffering from it um, and understanding the um, accountability that we have to communities overseas, right? For mm-hmm. instance, like if you just look at the simple issue of like sand mining, that in of itself already 
forces us to look at intersectionality because communities overseas like farmers and, and everything are losing their land because of our thirst for, for development and our thirst for like this um, consumerist culture that, that we want to be in. And yeah, even, even like the local banks in Singapore and how you know, they, financially we have been such a big contributor to, to the climate crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they're very like, just the very international nature of the issue and 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 how um, oftentimes it, you know, power is the one that 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 um, determines who is contributing and who is suffering mm-hmm. um, yeah that yeah there's just like I think so it's a yeah. sort of lens that helps you unpack you know who are the people what are their unique subject positions that makes them either the contributor or the sufferer of that issue and I think yeah that's a that's a very very important uh, thing can I pick yeah. up on something that both of you said and that's actually I'm very interested in is you know one of the failures of the previous era of socialism was that it was unable to overcome nationalism and nationalism defined broadly in the sense of it could be intra-state nationalism like ethnic, linguistic, religious, cultural uh, groups uh, or states. Um, and what we're seeing today, again, is that, for example, when we talk about labor, right, labor solidarity between working class groups across different uh, language, you know, um, race, but also in different countries should be a lot stronger. But instead, what we're seeing is that nationalism is trumping that and people are hostile to uh, workers from other places, even though really those are the same people they should have solidarity with. And I know you had a, um, a panel called Solidarity Beyond Borders and we'll talk about now intersectionality. Were there any key takeaways from this? Any insights as to um, the conflict, this conflict between what is fundamentally a, you know, a, a nation is a constructed, it's an imaginary thing. It is, in a sort of uh, value neutral sense of the word, irrational. Not to say it's, it's necessarily bad, but it is not rooted in an objective reality, but in rather an imagined and constructed one. How on earth do we overcome this? Any, any insights from your conference? I'm very curious. Right. Um... In our conference, I mean, I think we had um, we had a lot of discussion. I think that ended up talking about. So I mean, yeah, we talk about nations and all that, right? But then we talked about classes between nations, and and there is this regional elite, right? There is a regional uh, class of people who profiteer, who profit from a lot of this pollutive industries, from a lot of land grabs, exploitation, and all that. And and I think there was there was this sense that we need to sort of build better networks regionally mm-hmm. to discuss and to center it on labor because mm-hmm. that's ultimately how it's organized. So that that was my takeaway from it. And there was this sense that, yes, we should do it more often. But like, it's easier said than done. Like, how do we do it? How, I mean, the, 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 there's so many, the, 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 like you said, right? You, you accurately pointed out, nationalism is so powerful mm-hmm. and it, it's it's very successful nation building project in Singapore and it's really it's in the way of the, of any sort of labor movement from coming up because there is very little solidarity uh, I mean you're more likely I think to get solidarity between migrant low wage migrant workers mm-hmm. and um and, and maybe PMET workers in Singapore mm-hmm. but you're not going to get PMET workers like solidarity with each other migrants and locals it's not going to happen I mean it's not going to happen yet because you have 
um, certain politicians who um, love really stoking that xenophobic fire mm. and, and really missing the point, right? Because at the end of the day, it's not the migrant worker who's taking your job. It's it's usually it's it's either a foreign investor or a local investor, okay, who is pitting you to two different classes together to fight for 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 what is really basic needs survival, mm. right? And he's and, and and it's usually a he and he is he would be glad you know that the migrant worker and the, and the uh, and the local worker are fighting with each other and that they are just gonna you know go and kill themselves. It's, it's mm. intra class warfare, intra class warfare, and it's it's. It's really sad to see that. And I think like we need to work on questioning nationalism. We need to, we need to I, think we, I think there's a lot more research that needs to be done on how to dismantle nationalism. And I think we, and then, and then we need to practice solidarity. How do we, and, and I think in Singapore, I feel like um, among civil society, the left, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's, it's pretty divided here, I think, because there are, there are some, I think, they tend to be older, I think, activists who, um, who I think are very nativist, who can be very nativist and say that, that, that you know, yeah, you know, th- these foreigners shouldn't have these jobs and all that, but that's not the point. Like, you're missing the point. It's, it's almost as if there's a scarcity of jobs and, and they, that these jobs, um, you know, like th- th- it's almost the investor is like not even there, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, where is that in the discussion? Yeah. And that is also a subject of how the, I think the PAP government has, has um, so when Tio Yuan's book came out, right, this mm-hmm. one inequality looks like, I felt that, the, the the reaction to that by the state was to come out and say regardless of class yeah regardless of something right mm-hmm. and 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 it then became high SES versus low SES yeah. and it just became among wage earners yeah. it's really trying to keep it in that bubble and when Chi Sun Juan says uh, in a debate that I mean he didn't say it actually mm-hmm. it was Vivian Balakrishnan who came out to say that um, you know my voters want to know uh, Dr. Chi uh, and his voters like Hola Bukitima, one of the richer, more affluent yeah. uh, voting constituencies. My voters want to know like what, why, like what, what does it cost them to to pay for the poor? Mm. And I'm just like, do you not realize that for decades, the the poor have been have been uh, ha- have been paying mm. for a lot of the, the the what the rich has gained, yeah. right? Through labor exploitation, through cutting out welfare, mm-hmm. through you know, all these things. And he doesn't understand that, and and he attacks. He soon joins and says that you're inciting class warfare. I'm like, it's already being waged by an upper class against a lower class. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just so much. I think, I think like, it's really, really hard to answer that question. But I think, like, um, it's very easy to be defeatist and say mm-hmm. that, that, yeah, you know, to, to build this sort of, like, class solidarity, working class solidarity, we we need to sort of rely on some something more than that, right? We need to mm-hmm. rely on, on, on a common ethnicity or some find other some label. But I really think we just need to do more work and we need to figure out how to bring these things together and what we are up against. We need to study the situation better. We need to talk to more people in the working class, find out, because honestly, these frustrations mm. are real, yeah. right? I don't think it's productive to go to somebody who is being, who is who is saying um, that, that um, you know, like I lost my job to foreign. It's, mm. it's, I, I don't think we should displace it. There's a genuine fear. There's a genuine anxiety. Mm. But understand that anxiety and, and find out and find out like where is this anxiety really should be placed? Yeah. Is it misplaced? I think that's what we need to do. That's, we need to have those conversations mm-hmm. with people on the ground. Yeah. I, I'm. I mean, one question that I want to ask, you know, on that note is, in my own personal conversations, talking to people and trying to sort of, you know get different perspectives, right? One of the things that I often end up hearing is that the ecological movement just doesn't strike a lot of people in an 
emotional and effective way, right? We talk about trans rights, we talk about labor rights. These are very immediate, very visual, very in-your-face problems, right? Whereas, you know, the climate crisis is something that's a little bit more invisible, um, a little bit more hard to imagine, right? Uh, given the scale and the timeline that it operates on. So how do you bring that to people? How do you sort of transform these ideas and show how they are absolutely critical and relevant for our time? Before I became involved in the environmental mm-hmm. movement, I really struggled with this. Yeah. I was more involved in other social issues. And honestly, I, w- I really felt very detached from the environmental mm-hmm. movement because um, what I see primarily is a lot of like lifestyle activism and like, changing your everyday habits. And mm-hmm. I... I just feel like, you know, why why are we concerned about all these when there are so many other, like, you know, lives at stake that, 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 that we need to focus on? Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's, for, for me personally, is is really understanding more of, like, the human rights perspective to mm-hmm. the climate crisis um, that, that drew me to the, to the movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think w- one area of, like, literature that has really helped me to, to relate to the climate crisis on, on an emotional level is... is you know, going looking at more like environmental humanities texts mm-hmm. um, and stories, and and trying to understand how do we comprehend, um, you know, like the sixth mass extinction, right? Like, yeah. you know, that has been repeatedly said by climate climate activists, but mm-hmm. um, it's very easy to dismiss it, you know, because we are constantly bombarded by bad news, and yeah. we are constantly um, asked to you know move at a pace so quickly that we have no time to reflect on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I feel like reading all these texts and really like reflecting on, you know, how do we relate to such a such a issue of like of such immensity and what is lost when when a species goes extinct, right? Is it? it I I don't really think it, it, it. I think sometimes we think of extinction as the extinction of one that final um, animal, but um, what is lost is like that whole intergenerational history and and work that puts into survive likes ensuring this species have, have lived yeah. and, and and thrive and all this is lost as a result yeah. and I think another part that really helps me to, to relate to it is just a basic fact that our human history is such a small mm-hmm. part of like this whole evolutionary history and like shouldn't that fact in of itself humble us and, mm-hmm. and, and try to and, and call us to, to work on these these issues um, so I, what's a what's a text because you mentioned that texts have been very transformative for you. So if you could recommend one text, like just one text for a person to read to get themselves, you know, uh, a perspective on the climate crisis, what would that one text be? I have two texts oh, yes. <laughs> that are like really transformative for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the first is Flight Ways by Thomas Van Duren. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, yeah, so basically he confronts this question of um, extinction and how do we relate to it? What is lost? How do we grieve with these um, mm-hmm. animals that goes extinct? Um, how, what does it mean for human societies as well? Mm-hmm. Um, another text is, is This Changes Everything mm-hmm. by, by Naomi Klein. I think that gives a very, very good um, perspective on more like the political side of climate change and, and how yeah different issues intersect with each other and and it's environmental issues are never really just environmental when you look into it yeah, um, yeah so that's what I recommend Kumar what about you yeah how do you bring the issue of climate change and make it relevant for people who can't immediately feel its urgency right I think like um, what needs may be counterintuitive we need to go to the people mm-hmm. right we need to go to the ground and find out what are the anxieties and and because if if it is true 
that it is in our interest to move to uh, uh, to move to to reduce emissions and to fight for a just transition, right? Um, then that should come up in their daily conversations. They mm-hmm. should come up in these conversations. So I, I I would say go down, talk to people, right, who are in these industries that are pollutive, mm-hmm. or talk to people who are in who are likely going to be who are supposedly going to be disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis, yeah. right? These are people who currently um, are on the other end of the inequality spectrum. Mm. They don't have enough labor protection. They don't have enough social protections because of various um, various ills in our own society, like homophobia, transphobia, um, and, and, and also just uh, an aversion to the poor, mm. right? It's very anti-poor. So, so these are the people who... Like climate change is just like any other crisis, um, mm. but just worse. Um, in in the end, and we see how it how it how it affects people on the margins during this crisis and COVID, right? Mm. Your people who who don't have these uh, protections to begin with are, are just going to be left defenseless. Mm. Um, so, for example, there was a study that came up. I think it was DBS. Um, they published some some findings and they showed that I think it was um, like among the middle class or something. It was like ten people. You generally face a ten percent mm-hmm. uh, income loss, and during the COVID pandemic, um, if you look at people in lower income, you're gonna have that times five, times six, times seven, oh. because they didn't have these protections anyway. They were working, they they're working day jobs. They don't have savings. Mm-hmm. Um, they are already in debt. Mm-hmm. So the idea is just to go down there, talk to them. What is their anxieties, and then sort of like link it mm-hmm. to 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 a just transition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think. It's also a, it's, it's 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 a it's the way of communicating this and the way of organizing this is mm. is dialogue, yeah. right? And it's not so much of like, this is what we propose. This is in your interest. Do it. Which mm. I think tends to be a lot of activism in 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 Singapore because it's it's because we we don't our, our, most of us our day job is not activism. Mm. We don't have the time to do that. So there may be there may need you know we need like. A more concerted effort to sort of do this kind of grassroots conversations and, and really find out and feed that into the advocacy mm-hmm. feed that into the movement so you know it's not something that comes out of thin it just comes out of like you know ivory ivory tower research mm-hmm. and so on and so forth yeah um, can yeah. I just add to something um, yeah I think another reason that it's maybe quite hard to, to really get into the issue is because how, of how invisibilized everything is mm-hmm. um, the effects of climate change is, is very much hidden from us in Singapore and, yeah. I, and I think perhaps one way that we can go about this is to try to make these invisible things um, visible um, f- for instance something that we we really wanted to do in the conference is to to show the the reality of like um, that indigenous communities have been displaced in Singapore for the sake of development mm-hmm. and that is something that you know, we don't see in our history textbooks mm. at all. Um, we, we, we read more about Raffles than about our indigenous history, which is just like, yeah. uh, I don't really understand why that is the don't case. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and also, yeah, the issue of like sand mining um, and, and yeah, fossil fuel industry that, that we financially invest in abroad, like how does that displace communities overseas? And I think the last thing that I would be you know, interested to explore further is, is having... Um, more 
information about how environmental injustice takes place in Singapore. Right? I mean, we were just having a conversation earlier about how uh, we, we observe that, that um, I think there could be a tendency for uh, migrant worker dormitories to be located near factories and, and how does that, you know, like the air quality is also different, right? So how does that affect um, the, them and how the people who are living in the area? Is there a certain um, socioeconomic background that, of people that tend to be located in these areas? So I think I personally haven't really seen much data around this and I would be interested to explore more. If I can just pick up on the, the history, what that reminds me also is, uh, you know, as a historian reading um, contemporary uh, writings in the late 60s, early 70s, and the sheer optimism about our future that is present in those writings about how the world's going to get so much better, things uh, you know, technology is going to transform the world, we'll have flying cars, you know, we're going to solve all these problems. And then I think back to when I grew up um, and uh, in the 90s, early 2000s, and there's a kind of consensus, okay, this is it, this is the end of history, this is, you know, we've, we've solved these things and we're not going to get better or worse per se, you know, but we're just going to continue on in this trend. And then now, when I look at what people, younger people, right, all these writings about younger people um, in their 20s, uh, people like yourselves, you know, there's a, there's a sort of underlying theme of profound exhaustion, pessimism, frustration, the world's getting worse, is it even going to exist? So I think what I want to say, especially to older people who might be listening, is have very serious conversations with your children, your grandchildren, who are going to have to live with this world. And don't dismiss what they say as being, you know, there's all those cliches. Oh, when I was your age, uh, you know, oh, young children, you know, young people today, so spoiled, blah, blah, blah. You know, but actually listen to the cares and concerns that younger people have. Because for younger people, I think there is a genuine sense the world is not going to be here when they get to, you know, retirement age. And that's genuine fear, right? And we, I think, older people need to understand that. Mm. New narrative surveys of, of uh, Singaporeans' concerns found that over, overwhelmingly older people were concerned with you know, um, the, the PAP's politics and transparency and accountability, but also, of course, things like healthcare, CPF, housing, whereas younger people were, were really, really concerned about cli the climate, climate crisis. Mm -hmm. And uh, that generational gap also needs to be bridged. And I think we need to seriously talk to each other and older people need to really do listen to younger people about this. Anyway, bouncing off of Mincia's point, right? She, she brought up the point about our very artificial and poor construction of our national history, privileging the life of Raffles over the indigenous community. I, I just want to direct this to I just I'm gonna get PJ started because I'm very very curious about this. But just maybe a short bit. How has this construction of our history? Um, affected our ecological eyes, affected the lens through which we see the ecological crisis. Okay. I feel intuitively that there's a strong relation, yes. you know, with this um, privileging the colonialists over the indigenous, right? Yes. One, this massive outspreading force of disaster, another one that was very in touch with the land, with the, with the earth, right? So what, uh, what, can you say a few words about, yeah, what that relation is, how that's kind of corrupted our ecological consciousness? Well, I think actually the, the main thing I'd focus on, right, and I mean, you know, I could talk about this for a long, long time, but the main thing is actually 
the underlying normative value that um, exploitation is uh, that that produces then uh, economic development is a normative good in and of itself, mm-hmm. right? And and this then underpins our entire attitude that GDP growth, making more money, you know, becoming more effective, efficient, right? Greater exploitation of the resources around us is a good thing that improves society. Mm-hmm. That whole idea underpins how our history is presented. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from very simple things like we were a fishing village when Raffles walked up and today we're a gleaming metropolis. The fundamental idea is it's better to be a gleaming metropolis mm-hmm. than a fishing village without actually unpacking the idea of what are the trade-offs with, mm-hmm. you know, that being a gleaming metropolis, global city, connected, right? Having all these resources accessible to us by being flown in, shipped in from around the world. All of this is a good thing. You know, and that is why we should be happy with Raffles and why we should be happy with the PAP without ever thinking about the trade-off. So mm-hmm. that to me is the most key thing. The, the, the sort of, you know, it's, it's very neoliberal. It's in some ways uh, a sort of Whiggish interpretation of history. Mm-hmm. It's, um, but fundamentally, it's also, I think it, 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 it was introduced to prop up uh, first the colonial government and then the PAP government and their decisions um, and governments, of course, always want to be shown to be having achieved success. Mm-hmm. But then also it works the other way where having achieved this, they have to keep arguing that this is how you define success. Mm-hmm. So uh, defining success in a very specific way that is extractive and exploitative, I think that's, yeah. So we really do need to reevaluate that and mm-hmm. think about all the trade-offs. Everything has trade-offs, right? And that's yeah. not explored in our history at all. Yeah, I never kind of, I, I never thought about it uh, sort of that way that, you know, by making that implicit value judgment about, oh, colonization, modernity, late capitalism is a great thing, that that comes at the expense of the environment, that comes at the expense of the poor, and that's just baked into our history and then subsequently baked into our psyche. So It's the logic, right? Mm-hmm. It's the logic of, of capitalism, yeah. right? Of colonization, of imperialism that drives the our climate crisis, mm-hmm. right? It's something that you said before in, um, in I think the civil society ground speaks that really struck me, which is like, we can't rely on these ideas because the logic itself mm-hmm. is unsustainable, yeah. right? Um, the fact that you need, you need to have this exploitative relationship with somebody mm-hmm. for some sort of, uh, so that people, mutual like self-interest, mm-hmm. everybody's rational self-interest will somehow create this sort of society where the, the, the ultimate good is achieved. Um, has to be questioned. Yeah. So, so Naomi Klein says it very well, right? It's uh, you know human nature didn't didn't kill the climate. It's mm. it's didn't kill the planet. It's capitalism, yeah. and we need to question the logic of capitalism and the things that capitalism has 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 dished out in its arsenal, mm. like colonialism, like imperialism. So, like, I mean, just near us, right? Mm. What's going on in West Papua, right? Yeah. It's um, what's going on in Kashmir. Um, so, I mean, we te- I think in Singapore because we we get a lot of American TV we tend to really look to the West a lot. And that's something that I got from the conference as well. Like um, we tend not to look near us. And I think culturally we are more in line with the US mm-hmm. than we are with Indonesians, with Malaysia and and, and Philippines and, and all, all these countries, even, even India. We look at India right now with so much xenophobia. Oh, yeah. It's ridiculous. Like you can see articles about COVID in India and you can see people bringing up Sika 
like it's honestly quite gross. I think mm. yeah, it's yeah, but but um, yeah, I just I just wish we could question that logic. Yeah, well, I mean, bringing it to sort of the issue of the hour, right? COVID nineteen has affected the conference, uh, your conference in in innumerable ways. Um, but of course, it's also changed our human landscape, right? So, could you tell us a little bit about some of the core and key damages that COVID nineteen has had? Um, in interaction with, of course, the climate and the economy. Maybe we could start with you, Kuma. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I think like one is that it has, like in any crisis, it has uh, affected the people at the margins way, way more disproportionately. Mm-hmm. And um, we see this in terms of um, low-income people. Yeah. Um, you see them losing jobs. Uh, we see them um, losing income, and uh, with that, you know, that's they're left. They're left to do to, so that's where I think mutual aid. There was mm. a mutual aid network that was set up, yeah. and that was quite interesting. So like um, you had people really just stopping to rely on the state because mm. I think a lot of uh, our a lot of our social welfare, right? Um, you know, social services and all that really relies on a lot of documentation, a lot of proof, mm-hmm. and and proving that you're poor yeah. is in itself a traumatic process. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and and doing that and trying to prove deservedness is also difficult, especially when uh, a lot of people in low income right now are underemployed. Mm-hmm. They're not unemployed; they're underemployed, mm-hmm. and that's a very key difference. Um, while the press, the government is very concerned about unemployment data, they're not talking about underemployment, mm-hmm. which is people who are not in full-time work, mm-hmm. um, people who are in gig work, people who are in part-time work, and or, or they are in you know, some sort of on-call job and so on. And as a result, their, their employment might not be official. They may not be any contract. So to the state, they are unemployed. Or, or when it only comes to, to receiving um, some sort of uh, financial assistance, they're suddenly like, there's no proof that they're employed because they don't take like the employer's letter mm-hmm. or... or an employer won't even give the letter because why would they what do they owe you yeah right so and, and I think a lot of that there's especially the case for a lot of local workers a lot of them are in the service industry a lot of them are doing grab a lot of them are doing um, you know food delivery and all mm-hmm. that and we don't even recognize like I mean gig work is a really really complicated topic because it's it's supposed to be seen as work I mean call it gig work we see them yeah. as essential workers yeah. but we don't give them employment rights. Mm-hmm. Like they're not seen as employees. And the other thing is, I mean, th- that's the same logic with, with foreign domestic workers, right? They're not seen as employees in our mm-hmm. employment act. Yeah. So in California, there was a ruling recently to um, for, 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 for employees in Uber and all this gig work to be seen as full-time employees. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see, in, in America, where, where you can, some can say that there are a bit more freedoms than in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And, um, this this was supposed to be a good thing and 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 indeed it was and this means that workers will be given more employment rights they'll be they'll, they'll be given um some sort of benefits and so on but the thing is what uber did in response to that was to threaten a capital strike which means that they will withdraw their money mm-hmm. from california and this means everybody will be displaced with a job without mm-hmm. a job that's what they can do in singapore also right um and and that's what foreign investors can do in Singapore. That's why the government always says that we are, that we don't want to 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 give too many labor protections, mm. give uh, union give like union rights and all these kind of things. Because if we do that, then it's going to drive away foreign investors. Yeah. 
Yeah, but that's only the case if you don't allow workers to strike, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's the other. Yeah, it, it's it's that's why it's always class, and and so that's the effect of COVID, especially on the lower income. Mm-hmm. That's that's what I see. Mincy, what about you? What do you think are some of the core issues that have been revealed or have come to light because of COVID nineteen? Building on what Kumar has said, I think one of the main thing that came to light is how unprepared our systems are to deal with the global crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in, during the COVID period, we see a lot more emphasis being placed on like care work mm-hmm. um, and, you know, how, and, the, and workers, right, and how essential they are to, to the economy. But um, I think really, but then we don't really compensate them um, in a fair manner. And I think that is really exposed um, during this COVID period. Um, I think another interesting thing I think COVID also presents um, quite a good opportunity for us to reflect on on in the values that, that we want our society to be honest as what we were talking about with the you know all the logics of extractivism and um, and you know I think right now we, we do see the airline industry and the fossil fuel industry being very very affected by it mm-hmm. and you know the executives aren't the one that's really suffering the workers are the ones that are, that are suffering because of um, um, the economic crisis that is happening with these industries and so I think it's you know we have to talk we have to start talking about a just transition mm-hmm. like now we have to talk about it like before the climate crisis really forces us to do it yeah. and we have nothing prepared mm-hmm. Um, and I think another part is um, the I think the COVID crisis also showed us that we what we have said previously about you know it's impossible to change our economy it's impossible mm. to change our way of life I think the COVID crisis shows that it is possible we are changing mm. and yeah I think the same the same principles of how we are dealing with the COVID crisis to some extent should also be extended to the climate crisis um, mm. and lastly I think we also have to recognize that this is probably not going to be the last pandemic that mm-hmm. we are going to experience um, with the climatic changes. A lot of there's a lot of uncertainty as to like what is going to happen, what kind of um, new diseases are going to release when like our ice cap melt or something. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, I think it's a really good opportunity to start thinking right now on how we can um, organize a just transition. I'm speaking of changes and transitions, right? I want to ask you, what is your theory of change, right? How do you see activism, AIC, and your own activism moving forward? What do you think should be done, could be done, must be done, and how it should be executed? You know, uh, I think it comes down to having conversations and uncomfortable dialogue about mm-hmm. what this transition can look like and, and what um, what we have to take care of in this transition. and. Um, addressing the anxieties that we all have because it is really scary, right? Like moving to a new um, world that that um, and moving away from all our old habits and what we are used to. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I think it comes back to yeah, starting to have conversations and especially having conversations with workers in these industries who are, are now really, really affected. Um, yeah, I think there's a it's a conversation that needs to be had because on one hand. Um, we need to transition away from this industry, but on the other hand, we, there's so much of um, things that we need to do before we can like have this transition. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think for, for me, it would be coming down to have that dialogue and, and conversation about what exactly this transition would look like. Mm-hmm. And so that really echoes Kuma's point as well about getting on the ground and speaking to the people most affected, most directly affected. So Kuma, I'm guessing that your theory of change is going to be somewhat similar. Can you share with us sort of what are your ideas about what activism should be? Yeah, um, so like I, 
Yes, yes. I think I think like talking to the people on the ground and all that has been monopolized. Um, having these conversations has been monopolized by politicians, mm-hmm. um, and 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 the PAP and the extension of the PAP in different forms, like People's Association, the grassroots, and all that. Um, there isn't really. I don't think it's illegal to to talk to people. Mm-hmm. So I, I I think it's just because it's so much work, right? Where do you start? Does anybody have a plan? There's no reference. So that's something that we need to figure out. And and I mean to quote Malcolm X, right? We're not outnumbered. We're out organized. Mm-hmm. What we need to do is to organize. And and um, there is no one where we cannot wait for a savior politician mm-hmm. to come out. I mean, with all due respect to James Lim and Raisa Khan, like I like their campaigns and all that, mm-hmm. but they're not going to be the ones who sort of like rescue us from 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 yeah, this. Yeah, because no one no one can, right? No Nobody one can. can. It's only and no one a, should either. Yes, yeah. yes. It's only a movement can, mm-hmm. right? And we need to think about movement building. And that is really, really hard to do. But I think some... In AIC, the conference, we had some ideas on uh, taking stock of where we are and, 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 and just figuring out like, it's sort of like doing a literature review, right? You're, you're sort of like, okay, taking stock of like, okay, what, what is there out there in the in civil society and sort of critiquing it and then going like, okay, so now what, right? Mm-hmm. That We had a post AIC thing called um, Talk So Much, Do What Now, you know, mm-hmm. kind of thing. And, and it was a smaller group. Uh, PJ, you were there, yeah. So like, I mean, it's a smaller group and we discussed like some things. And um, I think the sense is that we need to stop I mean, not stop, but we need to go beyond just talking about what we're resisting, mm-hmm. right? And talk about what we're building, yeah. right? So in AIC, the people, I mean, the conferences and all that, I mean, I can just narrow it down to four things, right? Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's about a just transition. A just transition means that we need to move um, to re- to halve our global carbon emissions mm-hmm. by 2030. That is as per an IPCC report. You have to do that. Um, otherwise, we are in a point of no return. Mm-hmm. And we need to prepare for the effects of climate change, rising sea levels and all that. Bangladesh is sinking. Mm-hmm. Um, China has issues with the Three Gorges Dam. Um, Jakarta is sinking. That's why Indonesia has, has shifted its capital, right? And and so we need to prepare ourselves for that. And, and, and the, the third thing, which is the most important part of a just transition and differentiates itself from other climate movements um, that, you know, Minche talked about, you know, it can be very lifestyle, consumerist kind of thing. You need to talk about how this, how about transitioning in a way that benefits and protects the majority and not just a few. Mm-hmm. And your majority is the our workers. Mm-hmm. Your majority are people at the margins, mm-hmm. right? We keep saying minority a lot, yeah. but if you look globally, right, your minority, I mean, if you look at, for example, minorities in Singapore, right? Like Indians, if you look globally, how many Indians are there? Like we make up such a huge population and and if you talk about minorities as well you just look at the diaspora sorry mm-hmm. you look at the diaspora you look at you look at where people came from and all it's, it's actually a majority it's mm-hmm. it's just oh, it's 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 really controlling discourse to sort of continually feed us this rhetoric that we're weak mm-hmm. that that we don't have the strength and the working class even right i mean they can find all kinds of ways to to divide us through nationalism through middle class high ses low ses mm-hmm. We need to fight that. We need to remind ourselves what this is and we need to, to really organize around that. So, I mean, just to, to sum up, right, when we talk about a just transition, um, some things that we want to build towards AIC, right? One is to have a degrowth economy. Mm-hmm. So this means decoupling um, GDP, right, from, from carbon emissions. Is that correct? Decoupling? I can't remember, yeah. But degrowth basically means not prioritizing GDP anymore because GDP doesn't necessarily translate to an improve in well-being. Mm-hmm. And instead, what we want to do is center care and ecology. And um, the other thing is 
replacing our retributive justice system with a restorative justice system, mm-hmm. right? Where we see each other, as, where we use the language of accountability and healing mm-hmm. rather than punishment. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is just really expanding our democracy. Mm-hmm. So this means um, people having the ability to advocate for themselves, to fight for themselves in, in labor unions, having the, the right to assemble, the right to strike, um, all these different rights that are supposed to be fundamental to, to, to just existing as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the second thing, and, and the fourth thing, right, is, is, and the last thing is really increasing our social welfare, mm-hmm. right, in terms of social and labor protections and ensuring that the people who are, who are not visible, mm-hmm. right, as Minche said, people who are not currently visible, uh, harms that are currently not visible are made visible, mm-hmm. right? Trans people should be recognized. Um, gay marriages should be recognized. Mm-hmm. Um, we should also recognize, the, 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 it just baffles me that we have one million work permit holders in Singapore, but the national disease expert, right? National infectious disease expert or something, I can't remember his name. He actually said in, 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 the, um, in, in the mainstream media recently that we didn't account for migrant workers in our plans. Mm-hmm. And that was like, you didn't account for one million people? Like, how did that happen? And, and, and if, if you think about it, it makes sense why you would do that because they're excluded from our national conversations. Mm-hmm. So we need to do that work of just making people visible and, and just bringing these voices to the fore. That's ultimately like where my theory of change is, yeah. So I just have sort of one last question here, which is, I think a semi-personal question, right? Which is, you know, in my conversations with people about climate change and the climate crisis, right, one of the things that often comes up is that when people try and live their activism, they try and make sort of conscious everyday choices to go vegan or to choose um, options or brands which are environmentally sustainable over those that are not, um, there's often a sense of fatigue or hopelessness in that I'm just buying a shirt, you know, or I'm just not eating meat for, you know, what, what does my action count? What, is, what does it matter in the grand scheme of things? Because, you know, for every beef burger that I don't eat, you know, Foxconn and the big companies are churning out megatons of gas and carbon emissions. What does it matter at all? So that sense of fatigue, I think, tends to be a big stumbling block for many people who are trying to live their activism. But what do you think about that? How do you negotiate that? Yeah, I think like um, the language of restorative justice helps here. Mm-hmm. And I think like um, we need to think about it as harm reduction. Mm-hmm. So like we, yes, I mean, um, our individual actions, right? Like especially consumerist actions, right? I mean, just changing lifestyle order. Yes, it doesn't, you know, really translate to some sort of systemic change or whatever, but it's important to also try to reduce harm in whatever way possible. Mm-hmm. And uh, I would say like one thing that has helped me like uh, ground myself and and not feel utterly depressed like after you know just reading the news and and just seeing how little progress there is is by just getting involved with communities and and talking to other people I realized like um, there are some relationships that I have where uh, sharing sharing that kind of fatigue can add to more fatigue Mm -hmm. but there are other communities where I share that with other people and I feel so energized Mm -hmm. you know where I'm like I'm not in this alone and I have this sort of care circle Mm -hmm. we can all grieve together right and we're gonna do something about it after this and I feel I feel less alone Mm -hmm. I feel um, like I'm not in this by myself and there's this sense of solidarity And, and I think that's really just the beauty of solidarity like I think 
we, I think solidarity doesn't get enough emphasis. Like mm-hmm. it really takes, um, it, it really, it, I, I think it really has a very healing potential and, and we need to, that's why I think restorative justice is good because it gives us that kind of language of talking mm-hmm. about harm, healing and accountability, which are these three concepts mm-hmm. are going to be the key concepts we need to like really get us out of the climate crisis, any, any kind of crisis. Mm-hmm. Minche, what about you? I'm really curious to hear this perspective. Um, quite similar to Kumar, actually. I think doing it with people and um, having a community where you can talk about um, all these difficult emotions together really, really helped um, me personally. Um, and I think one way I, I like to look at um, this individual action is, in a way, I'm trying to like also reclaim my agency in this world, right? Because <laughs> it's, it's quite daunting to look at the climate crisis and, and the way that it's moving and feel like there's nothing you can do. But I mean, within like doing these actions and, and I think that are still within my control and, yeah. and it's still, um, in a way, it, it's very healing f- for me to be able to um, live out these values that, that, that I'm not seeing right now in the world. Um, and yeah, I just, um, I think f- the idea that the, the principle for me is like the process of which we get there is, is as important even more or more important than wherever we end up being. And um, just seeing this as, as a long-term thing um, and we don't have to get it right at the start. Like it's okay to like, like have a cheat a day or two, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's like it's fine. <laughs> I mean, I'm gonna steal that answer. I'm just gonna say, I'm gonna steal that answer. Reclaiming agency, right? Because yeah. you know, when the fatigue sets in, it's you know, or when snarky individuals come and make these stupid comments online, like ah, you know, you talk about ecology, you talk about oh, don't use plastic straws, but then you see the big factories um, go and pump gas into the. You know, the answer should be well, I'm not gonna take it sitting down, right? It's my agency, it's my body, my life. I get to do what. I want with it and I choose not to take it um, lying down yeah so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that answer that's a really good response can I can I also ask uh, for our audience right if they want to get involved with what you're doing uh, what should they do how can they reach out right um, I think I mean there are a lot of different groups around and um, like SGCR is, is also growing. I, I don't think they're accepting memberships and whatnot. But what I do That's see... Singapore Climate Rally. Yes, yes, sorry. Yeah, and what I do see, however, is the growth of book clubs and the growth of, like, um, different sort of circles. So I try to start this um, radical men's circle, like, where we talk about um, gender issues, mm-hmm. and it's just all men. Um, and, and But, yeah, it's just because I'm so burned out. Like, I don't have the energy for that. But... Um, it's, 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 I think I think you just need to get in touch. I mean, you can get in touch with myself or like any anybody in AIC and they can put you in contact with other sort of like initiatives that are there. It just may not be so visible because mm. um, yeah, people are just really exhausted. And mm. I think people just want to have these communities, these little pods where they can just talk to each other and so on. And, and I think, I mean, I mean, the question that you asked, the reason why I pause is because I think we don't yet have this sense of um, community building in, 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 in activism and, and in, in just the civil society, the left, whatever you want to call it in Singapore. And we need to do that. And, I, I, and my honest answer to that is that there isn't that that cons- that, that uh, created space yet. It's still building. It's, it's sort of like, um, it's very ad hoc. And I think it, it's, it's, it's going to be, I think, I think it being ad hoc and it being like unregistered and sort of being this sort of unofficial thing is, is why it's so strong because it's, 
it's not it's, it's not beholden to any sort of institutional criteria and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And and so like what I would say is that I mean if you need them and 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 just just contact people who are in 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 AIC or, or people who are involved in the Singapore Climate Rally movement. In, in in the younger groups, I think there are a lot of different um, activities going on, book clubs and all that. So I used to do this. Thing we cheekily call GRC group, group reading community mm. yeah and we just organize book clubs I think where I got my intervention with climate first was when um, was when one of the founders of that 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 uh, space uh, assigned uh, this changes everything yeah and and by Naomi Klein and that's when I was like oh okay like you can see the intersections and all that and I started it, it was it was also quite accessible for me I felt like I was very hard for me to get into the environmental movement because it's so dominated by science. Mm-hmm. So it was very esoteric. And um, so I, I think like like GRC is still, I think, very decentralized right now. Like people just organize their own book clubs and whatever. But yeah, you can just contact me. You can probably contact me. Just contact like anyone, anyone in AIC and we'll just mm-hmm. find a community. All right. So um, without further ado, I'm going to thank my two guests, Minzia and Kuma from Activism in Crisis. Thank you so much for coming down and joining us uh, and sharing with us um, everything that you have uh, for the last hour or so. It's been amazing and I think I've learned a lot. I mean, I, I was always interested in ecology, I mean, but I didn't know how to respond, how to think about things the intersections that come with human rights, with care, with COVID, with labour. So this has been an absolutely fascinating, absolutely enlightening discussion. And thank you so much for coming down. And thank you very much. Thank you to our guests. Thank you, Sean, for co-hosting. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. Uh, And do check out our sister podcast, Southeast Asia Dispatches, for more news, interviews, and commentary from around Southeast Asia. Uh, Check out all our stuff on newnarrative.com. And if you like what we do, please do join New Narrative as a member, newnarrative.com slash join. Or you can donate to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash donate. So thank you very much, everyone, and see you next time.